Welcome to History Lab. I'm your host, Anna Clark. This season on History Lab, a series of audio stories, Listen to Darlinghurst, produced by Catherine Franey. In this episode, special guest Sunil Badami conjures his Darlinghurst and some of the unconventional characters who've lived there. I remember the first time when I was about 15, maybe a little younger, I went with a friend of mine who was a bit older and who kind of knew Oxford Street like the back of his hand. And of course, if you've ever lived in the western suburbs of Sydney, you'd know that it takes nearly forever to get to town by public transport. And so by the time you get there, it's as if you've come to another country. When you get off at Town Hall Station and you walk through Hyde Park and you see the War Memorial and all those big trees and the buildings all around you, even bigger, and you suddenly get to the Liverpool Street end of Hyde Park and you see Oxford Street just rolled out in front of you like some magical carpet, you know. In those days it was so full of venture. You know, there were pubs all up and down Oxford Street, the Burdekin, the Exchange, Cuba, Rogues. All these people, these interesting people dressed in crazy ways. You know, bears and leather queers and all sorts of people, punks, goths, wearing kinds of clothes that if I even thought about wearing them, my mum would probably ground me. And being so free and being themselves and this sense of danger, you know, that's how I first fell in love with Darlinghurst and its surrounds. And I still love it, although, like most people, I can't afford to live there. I'm Sunil Badami. I'm a writer, academic. Actually, my business card says bon vivant, raconteur and flaneur, which, according to my mother, either means adequate speller or still not a dermatologist. Darlinghurst and the suburbs around it, like Paddington, Surrey Hills, East Sydney, Woolloomooloo, historically, they were slums. If you look at the development of Sydney as it grew in the 19th century up towards the early 20th century, a lot of parts of Sydney were actually really swampy ground. So people didn't tend to build there. And if they did, it's because they had nowhere else to go. So at that time, and even up until the early 2000s, you know, accommodation in the city was pretty cheap. So it meant that interesting people who didn't always have a regular day job were always going to be living in those places. And then people like me, who'd come from somewhere else with dreams of the big city and found, you know, that they could live in a small flat in a residential like Dulcie Deemer did in the 1920s, or in a small house in the 1930s and 40s like Rosaline Norton, the Witcher King's Cross. And because there were so many of them congregating together, bouncing ideas off, getting drunk in the, the Lincoln coffee shop or in Mother's Cellar or, you know, eating at the Hasty Tasty, hanging around at Sweethearts or Kinsella's, there was always going to be this kind of froth and ferment of ideas and creativity and excitement. You might wonder how I know all about this stuff, you know, especially for an Indian kid from Greystains. But I think it's precisely because I was an Indian kid from the Western suburbs that I became so fascinated by everything and everyone around Darlinghurst, King's Cross and Woolloomooloo. In fact, my first job at university when I left home was managing the old Fitzroy Hotel on the corner of Cathedral and Darling Streets in Woolloomooloo. 
What I loved about being in Darlinghurst was it was so varied. You know, you had posh people living up in Potts Point, artists living, you know, around King's Cross and Surrey Hills, all those shadows and those residentials on Flinders Street or South Dowling Street, all those closed doors and open windows where you'd catch glimpses of these amazing lives free of conventionality. Apart from living in the area and hearing stories from people that I knew around Woolloomooloo, Darlinghurst and Paddington, what really helped me in terms of finding out more about the area was Wild Women of Sydney, a 1980 book by former Smith's Weekly journalist, George Blakey. He published it in 1980 and it was about the three wildest women in Sydney in the 1920s and 30s. That's uh, Kate Lee, the Sly Grog Queen, Tilly Devine, the brothel queen, and Nellie Cameron. They called her the angel of death because every guy she ever fell in love with happened to unfortunately get shot, not by Nellie, but someone else. And it amazed me to think that two or three women could dominate Sydney's underworld. You know, you often think it's just this violent masculine world and these women could dominate it. And so as a result of that, I wanted to find out more and more about this time period. You know, even getting older books by Blakey's mentor, Vince Kelly, who wrote about the really crazy policemen who operated undercover in Darlinghurst and King's Cross, authors like Ruth Park and Kylie Tennant finding books out about the first policewoman, Lillian Armfield, and all the trouble she had keeping girls out of the Booker T. Washington Club, which was apparently the club for black American servicemen. So as a result, I just started building up this imaginary map of Darlinghurst, peopled not just by these characters who would normally be forgotten by the official record, but also by their stories. When I was 14, and wishing I was anywhere else but where I grew up, I happened upon this story about this crazy old Hungarian poet Monkey called Sandor Berger. I, I've still got the old yellow clipping from the Sydney Morning Herald which talked about this guy who would put up protest signs and poetry all around Sydney on telegraph poles, mainly around where he lived in Darlinghurst, about the evils of psychiatry. He'd written all these weird books, written them in biro and photocopied them. He had a book called I Protest which was something like about eight or 900 pages, and the sequel to it was twice as long, and he would lodge them at the State Library. I was just so entranced by him. I would hear bits and pieces about him, or I would see one of the posters, and one of my greatest regrets is I never took one of the posters down. Anyway, years later, I happened upon a copy of I Protest. It was massive. It was like the telephone book. And reading through it, it was really interesting because... Sandra Berger's work was pretty bad, but it was so inflected by pain. He'd lost most of his family in the Second World War and concentration camps. He'd fled to Australia and hadn't been able to finish his education. And then by the time he got here, he had to take dead-end jobs because he didn't have the qualifications or the English. And I think he'd been sent to Long Bay for various kind of minor criminal offences and scheduled in mental hospitals a few times as well. And he'd had his heart broken a couple of times. So his frustration developed into this misogyny and 
distrust of politics and the police and society in general. He was pretty prickly and spiky when I met him eventually in the early 1990s. He wasn't anything like I imagined him to be. He had big Coke bottle glasses. He wasn't very big and he was quite stooped over. But I was also a little bit scared of him. I mean, he was really intense, very angry. I don't know what happened to him. I know he died in the 1990s or maybe the early 2000s. I remember the old lady with the kind of skew-if wig. She'd have this cigarette hanging out the side of her mouth and the lippy was, like, all over the shop. She would walk around restaurants and offer to take photos of young couples eating dinner together. And then she would give you a card and she'd tell you to call her (laughs) to pick up the photo. And I think I probably thought it was a bit of a scam at the time because... um, King's Cross and Darlinghurst in the 1990s and 2000s was basically really dodgy, right? So you get people turning up and they'd be offering to sell you little single red roses and everywhere you walked, especially around the LL Main Fountain or around the back of Forbes Street near the art school, people were either trying to hustle you for sex or hustle you for drugs. I heard years later that she had died in bed. She was smoking and her flat caught fire and she burnt to death. You know, there's all these characters that you took for granted, like those old places that eventually got knocked down. You know, you'd see around King's Cross and Darlinghurst and you'd think, oh, yeah, they were always there, and then one day they aren't. I hope against hope that we might be able to recover that raffish, devil-may-care Sydney spirit... The kind of naughtiness and rudeness that defined Sydney when I was growing up, right up until I think probably the early 2000s when house prices first started to explode and rent started to explode. I'd like to think it could happen. The big problem is, is that interesting people don't get paid very much to be interesting. We don't value art, we don't value creativity, we don't value eccentricity. You know, it's like um, a coral reef. Once you let it die out, it's really hard to bring it back. You can walk down any street in Darlinghurst, Riley or Forbes or Liverpool or Palmer, and you can almost hear those voices. You can almost see the palimpsest of all those lives that have gone before. That was Sunil Badami, remembering his Darlinghurst and the ghosts that still animate the place. I'm Anna Clark and this is History Lab, and joining me now is Catherine Franey, who produced the Darlinghurst audio story you just heard. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Anna. Can you tell me a little bit about how that piece came together? Well, I think when I was researching what these audio stories might be, I spoke to a number of people, including the writer Sunil Badami, because I knew about his special interest in inner Sydney, its history, some of the characters, the history of Bohemia. And I just thought, I want to get Sunil's voice into this series. He's such a vivid storyteller and he knows so much. So 
I thought, well, here's a frame around which Sunil can talk, you know, this idea of eccentrics. But I also wanted the listener to understand that Sunil's connection to Darlinghurst was a personal one as mm. well. You know, he lived there, he mm. worked there for a number of years. And so that's kind of where the story came from. Now, interestingly, this project intersected with lockdowns and so on. So I had to wait to do interviews with a lot of people. But Sunil actually was able to record himself. So over a phone call, I interviewed him, but he recorded using a really good microphone at his end. And so that was just an absolute treat. So we actually kind of did it remotely. In most of the stories, we have done recordings like in situ in Darlinghurst, but this one was not. And so then the work was to actually create all of that sense of place through using sound and music. Mm. It's a real curation, isn't it? And it differs from what we might think of as a conventional oral history, for example, when you're there, you know, asking questions and getting answers. This is Sunil curating his story of Darlinghurst. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I had to cut out so many interesting stories because one of the objectives with these audio stories as well was brevity. But um, because Sunil actually worked, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this because he described it at length in the original interview that we did. He worked um, in a sex shop in Darlinghurst for a number of years. And so he was telling some amazing stories (laughs) from that chapter as well. That's also quite a curation. Yes. (laughs) Um, The story is really more than just these sort of snapshots of the individual people who are mentioned. It's also about material conditions. It's about changing Darlinghurst over time and what allows this melting pot of eccentricity to exist, what allows it to begin and grow and become synonymous with the place itself. Mm, Well, I think it's about a kind of certain population density and a mix of housing. Mm. Darlinghurst has those. I think it's also about the availability of services, public services. By that, I mean public transport, community services. Darlinghurst is pretty well catered for in these respects. It's really central. So even though there's been massive gentrification and massive change, most local people will say, oh, it's not what it used to be in terms of Mm. diversity and raffishness. Of course it's not. But it still has a special quality and it still has quite a big social mix, Mm. I would suggest. Yeah, there's a real nostalgia in Sunil's piece, which is quite beautiful about sort of old Darlinghurst or lost Darlinghurst. But the story he tells is still seems to be very recognisably Darlinghurst to me today. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's actually the streetscapes that sort of enable some kind of continuity with the past. You know, Mm. it's a place, of course, there has been some demolition and some redevelopment, but there hasn't been kind of wholesale erasure. I think, I guess, the social heritage value of Darlinghurst is something that's appreciated and protected. And still draws people there, I imagine. Absolutely. Darlinghurst is a production of the Australian Centre for Public History in partnership with the Paul Ramsey Foundation. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley. Music in today's story by Blue Dot Sessions, Atlantic City Orchestra and Mod Fun. Thanks to Britta Jorgensen and Sarah Gilbert at Impact Studios, UTS. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. I'm Anna Clark. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>